Father, again, as we follow this story of Abraham and we see how he moves from Egypt back to Bethel and uh, to that altar at Bethel, and he calls upon your name, Lord, and, and at that place, he's in the very center of your will. Lord, uh, you, you've, you haven't gone anywhere. And just as, you, as, uh, just as we, we know here in the 21st century, you haven't gone anywhere. You're still on your throne. And if we'll just take the time to go back to the center of your will and approach you uh, in a humble spirit like Abraham does, we're going to hear from you, Lord. And that's, that's one of the lessons we're going to learn today in this text, and I hope you uh, teach that to all of us, Lord, uh, as we study this great chapter 13 of the book of Genesis. And I ask that you teach us by the power of your Holy Spirit. We just thank you for uh, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and all he's done for us so that Lord, by the Spirit, we can open up your word and, and learn about him and, and uh, learn about uh, uh, how we're to walk as men and women of faith. So teach us these things, Lord, as we look at this chapter 13 today. And I ask that in the name of Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen. Okay, when we left off last time, Abraham had gone down to Egypt. And he probably would have stayed there until he died. And his wife would have been a member of Pharaoh's harem. He would, she would have been one of Pharaoh's wives if God hadn't intervened. And we know that God intervened by sending plagues upon the Egyptians. More than likely, he gave Pharaoh a vision or a dream. And in that vision, he told Pharaoh, you better leave that woman alone. That is Abraham's wife. And I have plans for them. And you better not mess with my plans. And and uh, so Pharaoh heard from the Lord, and uh, he immediately went to Abram and said, Get your wife, who you told me was your sister. You lied to me. You'll get her out of here. Take the stuff I gave you and get out of here. Well, here's Abram, and he's down in Egypt, and he doesn't really know where he's going to go. So he does the logical thing, the best thing he possibly could do. He goes back up north uh, to Bethel and the altar of God that he had built before at Bethel, as he had called upon the Lord uh, in an earlier chapter. And Bethel is at the very center of Israel. And so what we see here is a symbol of Abram going back to the house of God. That's what the word Bethel means. It means the house of God. Going back to the house of God, and he's going to be at the very center of Israel and symbolically, that represents the fact that he's going to be at the very center of God's will. And whenever you're at the center of God's will, you're in the very best position you can be to hear from God. And he's going to hear from the Lord. So let's, let's begin in chapter uh, 13, beginning in verse number 1. And it says there, Then Abraham went up, or he went north from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him to the south. So he goes up north. He was really way south. So he goes up to the up north to the south or the Negev. And he goes through the Negev. And uh, he goes all the way back to Bethel. And we get a side note here in verse number two. Abram was, a, was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And so he leaves Egypt even richer than he was before he went down to Egypt. And God blessed him, even though he was out of the will of God, God blessed him financially while he was down uh, in Egypt. And I think he blessed him spiritually, too, because he learned a lot of lessons right there. 
So both Abraham and Lot at this point are, are very rich men. They've accumulated all sorts of cattle, all sorts of servants, uh, all sorts of silver and gold, all sorts of possessions. Uh, and, and so the Bible calls him very rich. I mean, during his time in, in, the, in Ur of Chaldea, he had, he had, he had made, a, it made himself wealthy, and then he added to that wealth when he was in Iran. And then when he goes down to Egypt, Pharaoh gives him that dowry, dowry for Sarah, and he gets to keep that. And so he's a, Abraham himself is a very rich man at this point. And who's giving him these riches? Where did he get these riches? Uh, well, some people might say the devil gave them to him, but I believe God has blessed Abraham with these riches. So there's a lesson here for us. There's nothing wrong with a godly man or woman becoming wealthy. There's nothing wrong with that. Where it becomes wrong is when we, is, it's not money that's wrong, it's the love of money that's wrong. It's not wealth that's wrong, it's the love of wealth that's wrong. And a, let me tell you what, I've known a lot of poor people who love wealth more than rich people love wealth. So you can be a poor person and, and still be sinning by loving wealth. So, so uh, uh, it's not wrong to be wealthy, and Abraham's a case in point there. I love the way Matthew Henry expresses this. Uh, principle in his commentary on Genesis. Listen to what he says, talking about Abraham. He says, as religion is a friend to outward prosperity. Did you hear what he said? He said, religion is a friend to outward prosperity. In other words, if you have true religion, you're more than likely going to prosper. It's a friend to prosperity. He goes on to say, he says, as a religion is a friend to outward prosperity, if well-managed, Outward prosperity is an ornament to your religion. In other words, if you manage the wealth that God gives you in a, in a proper way, it's an ornament to your religion. So uh, uh, what he means by all of this is if you handle your money following biblical principles. Now, what are some of the biblical principles? Well, number one is that the money you have you recognize that as coming from God. And you're a steward not of your own money, you're a steward of God's money. And what does God want you to do with that money? He wants you to use that money to bless others. So a godly man or woman is going to give from their wealth. Now, I, I, I don't understand people that don't give, don't give to God's work, that don't give to other people. Because, because if you have the heart of God, and God is blessing you, then you should want to give back to God, and you should want to give to others. And that's, I think, maybe the number one way we give back to God is giving, giving to others. Uh, that's one biblical principle, is, is the fact that we give. Another biblical principle is that we, we stay out of debt. I mean, we don't, the Bible says, oh, no man, nothing. Now, I understand there's places for debt. I mean, you're not going to buy a home in America, more than likely, if you don't have some debt. A mortgage. So, so there are times when I, I think it's okay to be in debt, but, but, but as a rule, you want to do the best you can to stay out of debt. And if you follow those principles and you, and you save and you, you're frugal and you, you recognize yourself as a good steward of God, you can't help but prosper. You are going to prosper. God's a liar. Because God says those who sow bountifully, what? Will reap bountifully. What you sow is what you reap, and that applies spiritually, and it also applies to the material world. And so uh, uh, if you handle your money well, then your religion is going to 
is, is going to cause you to prosper. That's what Matthew Henry was saying there. But it's also an ornament to your religion. I mean, if you handle your money well, it serves as a great witness to your children, to your family, and to other people. Uh, and, and, and you look at Abraham, I mean, uh, his outward prosperity certainly was an ornament to his religion. I mean, God had blessed him. And we're going to see later on as we follow through and we see Abraham's heart, he was a man who gave. He gave to others. He's going to give to Lot here in just a minute. We're going to see this. He's going to make a choice that really gives Lot the best part of the land. He was that kind of man. We're going to see him later on in another chapter or two. We're going to see him give a tenth of what he, all he has to the Lord. And so he's a tither. And so, so uh, uh, he reaped, sowed bountifully, so he reaped bountifully. Uh, and I think if, when we see the heart of Abraham and how he gave, followed these biblical principles of giving, he, he never gave to get. He got because he gave. He never set out to get rich. He got rich because he followed these biblical principles. Now, there's certainly exceptions to these principles. And, I, and, and, and uh, there's, there's ways that you can gain wealth and you can prosper by following these biblical principles, and then all of a sudden you can lose all of that wealth. Some emergency comes into your life, some disease, some war, some famine, some economic depression. Those can take all the things that we have away from us, and we have to hold things loosely. I mean, we're living in an age where, where I believe we're on the verge of seeing persecution in, in the United States of America. And I believe that, you know, you see already, you see states going after the assets of people who follow biblical principles. And that might happen more and more. So, so we might end up like the early church and the, and, and the state take away everything we have. So, so those things can happen. But even then, if you keep following biz, biblical principles, you're going to prosper. You know... Uh, my dad, I, and my dad's gone now, so I can, I can brag on him a little bit, but he served for me as a great example of a man whose religion w- was a friend to his prosperity. And his prosperity was an ornament to his religion. I mean, my dad was a middle-class American. Uh, he, he was a colonel in the Air Force. He never made a lot of money at that. I mean, military, you make pretty good money, but you don't make a lot of money. You don't get rich in the military. Uh, After he finished uh, his time in the Air Force, he retired and he became a postman. And so he humbled himself and became, I mean, a colonel in the Air Force, becoming a postman. He delivered the mail for 20 years. And and, uh, he always, I mean, I watched my dad. He always was a good steward of everything that God gave him. I mean, I know he tithed, and he even gave more than a tithe. Uh, I, I, he made us tithe, whatever I made at my... I mean, he made me tithe. I was under law when I was living with my dad. I mean, he made me tithe. If I were, mowed lawns, he made me tithe that. But, it, but eventually, that becomes part of who you are. You, under, you begin to understand that's a good thing to do. And, 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 and my dad never got into debt. I mean, other than a mortgage on a home, uh, he... he uh, uh, he always was there to help others. Uh, I mean, he always was frugal in his spending. He saved his money. And he followed all of these biblical principles, and he never set out to get rich. But when he died, he died a wealthy man. I mean, he couldn't help but prosper because he had followed these principles. And if you follow these principles... I'm not here today to try to get you to give more to this church. Man, that'd be a nice thing, but, but I'm not, that's not what I'm after. I'm trying to tell you, 
you're, you're robbing yourself of a blessing if you're not giving to God's work and giving to others. If you aren't saving your money, if you aren't frugal with your money, if you aren't staying out of debt, I understand there's times you have to go in debt, but you follow those principles and you can't help but prosper. But here's the problem. With riches comes trouble. I can tell you that right now. With wealth comes trouble. You, you, just, you just get wealthy in business and look at all the trouble that comes your way. You got to be a farmer. You get wealthy in your farm and look at all the trouble that comes your way. And so, so Abraham's no exception right here. Uh, there's going there's gonna, to there's gonna be trouble that's going to come his way. Go, look, look back at this verse again. It says, Abraham was very rich. That phrase, very rich, is the Hebrew word kabod. And it really has a dual paradoxical meaning. One meaning is that it's rich. You're very rich. The other meaning is that it's a heavy burden. And so what I have no doubt Moses chose this word to express that, yes, Abraham was very rich, but his riches became a heavy burden. And you can see this play out. We're going to see it play out here as we, as we go on through the text. So uh, he's rich, but uh, it's going to cause him problems with his, his uh, nephew Lot. So let's pick up. We'll get to that in a minute. Let's look at verse, verse number 3. And he went on his journey from the south, from the Negev. The Negev, again, is that inverted triangle at the bottom of Israel. It's that half, bottom half of Israel. It's pretty much a desert other than the area around Beersheba and Gedi and some of those places. And so he goes, he, 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 he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel. Now, Bethel, again, means house of God. El is God. Beth is house. Bethlehem, Bethlehem is house of bread. Lechem is bread. Uh, Beth is house. And so, so you're getting a Hebrew lesson here anyway. But that's all the Hebrew I know, so you just got it all. Uh, uh, so he goes as far south as Bethel to the house of God, to the place where his tent has been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had built there at first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. God hadn't gone anywhere. Abraham comes back. You know what? The lesson there. We, a lot of times we turn our backs on God and we go seem to get drift as far away as we possibly can from God. What do we got to do to get back in the center of God's will? All we have to do is turn around. Because God hasn't gone anywhere. He's right there. And I think Abraham realized that at, at that that at some point in his journey back, he said, what am I going to do? Well, what, well, maybe I ought to go back. See, God got me out of this mess in Egypt. Maybe I ought to go back to where I started, where I was calling upon the Lord, and I didn't wait on the Lord, and maybe I ought to go back and just sit there this time and call upon the Lord until I hear from the Lord. So he goes back to where he was, uh, to Bethel, somewhere, actually somewhere between Bethel on the west and Ai on the east, if you remember, and, and somewhere probably around modern-day uh, East Jerusalem, somewhere in that area, and it's a very mountainous area, and, and uh, he's built an altar there, and he goes back to the altar. He goes back to that altar, and he's going to call upon the name of the Lord, and he's going to try to get a word from the Lord this time. And he's not going anywhere until he gets a word from the Lord. 
Man, I tell you what, there is such a great lesson there. It, to, I mean, so many times we flippantly go into our closet and we say, Lord, I need a word from you. And we wait about 30 seconds and we don't get anything and we leave. I'm going to tell you what, I, I've been in this 30 years and never in 30 years when I needed a word from the Lord, a specific word from the Lord, if I didn't press in and ask, if I, if I pressed in and asked the Lord, I eventually would get that word from the Lord. I've always gotten a word from the Lord when I needed a word from the Lord. It had been an audible word, but it's been clear as a bell when he's given me a word. And I, I knew it was him because it came from nowhere. And, and if you'll press in and you'll stay there and you'll keep pressing in, if you need a word from the Lord, then, then, then uh, you just you stay there until you get that word. And so Abraham's waiting and he's calling Upon the name of the Lord, but in the meantime, he's got troubles. We, those, and so that's what we're going to pick up now in verse number 5. Lot also, who went with Abraham, got rich too. He had flocks and herds and tents. And now the land was not able to support them that they might dwell together. I mean, they had so much stuff that there wasn't a place for all of them to live. Uh, and, and, and for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. You know, there's no strife, yet, as some commentators say, I disagree with that. I don't think, I think it would say if Abraham and Lot were having problems. I don't think they're having problems at this point. But their herdsmen are because they're fighting over the land to, to graze their sheep. And so, so uh, there's strife beginning there, and I think Abraham realizes that it's going to eventually affect their relationship. And not only that, look at the last part of verse 7, the Canaanite and the Perizzites, or the Parasites, however you want to look at it, uh, it's Perizzites, but they're Parasites. They they were already there eating up the land. The Canaanites were there, and they probably all controlled the water rights, and so uh, they don't want Abraham and Lot parking their cattle there. They're not going to share any of those water rights with them. They probably control the wells, and that's where they got most of their water in that area. So, so they're not going to share it with them. And so, so uh, they're going to have to separate. That's the only solution that, that will work. And we see them separate or talk about separation in verse number 8. Look at verse number 8. It says, so Abram said to Lot, please let there not be strife between you and me. We've already got it between our herdsmen, so let's, let's stop that right now. So uh, let there not be strife between you and me and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are all brethren. Do you see how Abraham looked at his, all of those people, at even the servants, as his brethren? They were all his family. Uh, and then he goes on in verse number nine, and he says, "Is not the whole land before you?" Now watch Abraham. Look at his character here. He says, "Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. And if you take go take the left, if you go to the left, then I will go to the right. Or if you go to the right, I will go to the left." What's he saying? I'm going to take what's left over. You take what you want. And, 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 and I'll take what's left over. You know, last week when we saw Abraham go down into Egypt, I mean, we saw some flaws in his character, didn't we? Some serious flaws in his character. I mean, he really wasn't a very patient man because he, he, he was at Bethel and he was calling upon the Lord and he didn't wait upon the Lord. And, and so he went on down to Bethel. So he was an impatient man like most of us. 
he, he certainly wasn't a courageous man. He lacked courage, at least at this point. Now, we're going to see him do some courageous things later on, like take his son up on Mount Moriah to sacrifice him to the Lord. That's pretty courageous. Uh, but but at, at, when he was down in Egypt, he lacked courage. And, and because, I mean, he was ready to give his wife over to Pharaoh instead of, instead of risking his own skin. And so so uh, he, he wasn't a courageous man. And he lacked faith. I mean, here's the great, this great man of faith. We call him the father of faith, and yet he lacked faith. He, he really didn't have any faith because if he had really believed those promises that God had given to him, he would have never gone down to Egypt. And so he lacked faith. But today now we, we're looking at this guy, and we see some of his strengths. I mean, first of all, he's a kind man. He's a loving man. Uh, he, he's, a, he's a humble man. He's a man of peace. I mean, he doesn't want this strife between the herdsmen. He doesn't want any strife between him and Lot. I mean, he loves those people, and he, and, he, and he wants all to be well with them. And he's a humble man because, listen, he had every right to say, okay, Lot, I brought you down here. I'm the patriarch of this clan. Uh, uh, I'm going to take the good part of the land, and you're going to take what's left. But he doesn't do that. He's a humble man. He humbles himself, and he said, Lot, you take what's, the, what's best. And... Uh, uh, out of love, he gives Lot this choice. And the choice is really a no-brainer because look at verse number 10 as we see Lot make his choice. So Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And it was so beautiful down there. It was like the garden of the Lord like the land of Egypt as you go towards Zor, that, that, that crescent valley down around the Nile River. I mean, it was every bit as beautiful as that. You know, one of the most beautiful spots on this earth that I've ever seen is the Jordanian Plain. That area that runs, if you were to get in a car and drive from Tiberias on Highway 90, all the way down to the Dead Sea, you see some of the most beautiful land you've ever seen in your life. You've got the Jordan River on the left and mountains on the left, and you've got mountains on the right, and that road, road runs right down the middle of that valley. And on both sides of that road, you have the most beautiful farms that you've ever seen. I mean, I'm talking about green. I mean, this was in February when we were there, and everything was just so green and so pretty and, and well-watered. I mean, it was just absolutely gorgeous and where there weren't any farms you would see the the sheep herders out in the out on the plains herding their sheep i mean just a beautiful piece of land and it runs like that all the way down like i say from tiberius all the way down to the dead sea and the dead sea i have no doubt was formed by that god blasting sodom and gomorrah that's where that salt came and all of this one it's called the salt sea or the dead sea and and if you look at a map of where sodom and gomorrah uh, supposedly was, uh, were rather, they, bo- they were both right in the middle of the Dead Sea. So, so more than likely that was formed by that blast that God sent from heaven to destroy those two cities. So before Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, that if, as, if that's as beautiful as it is today. I just can't imagine how beautiful that plain was where Sodom and Gomorrah set. That is absolutely gorgeous land. And so here's Lot and 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 he looks and he says, hey, man, I'm taking that. I'm looking out. You can see it from, those, from that East Jerusalem area. You can look out over the Dead Sea and, and you can see all of that, that beautiful land on the left. And, and back then it was where the Dead Sea was was just as beautiful. 
I got to tell you, the Dead Sea is one of the most beautiful spots on this earth, too. That is the bluest-looking water uh, you've ever seen. And, and you get it with that red clay in the background and that green greenery to the left. And I mean, It is an absolute beautiful sight. So I can just see Lot sitting there around East Jerusalem on those mountains looking down into that valley. And, and uh, uh, if, as, as Abraham had said, if Lot went left, uh, he would go right. So Lot heads east to, to the Jordanian plain, and Abram's going to head southwest to, to Hebron. We'll see that in just a minute. Now pick up in verse number 13. We get one of those butts in here. And all we're going to get is just a little commentary, a little warning, a forewarning of what's going to happen to Lot. Uh, Lot had made a decision based upon the lust of the eyes. But look at verse number 13. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful, watch this, against the Lord. Here's one of these proof texts in the Bible that there are degrees of sin and wickedness. I mean, the Sodomites weren't just wicked and sinful. They were exceedingly sinful and wicked. And here's what I want you to see. Their wickedness was against the Lord. What's that tell you? They were enemies of God. They knew right from wrong, just like every human being knows right from wrong. But they chose to be enemies of the Lord. We don't care what you do to us. We're going to do what we want to do. Now, they don't know what's coming. And Lot doesn't know what's coming, or he might would have chose a different place to go to. But here's Lot, and he's heading, he's heading right down towards enemy territory. I mean, uh, back in verse number 12, then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan. Or we'll pick up in 11. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan east and journeyed east and they separated from each other abraham dwelt in the land of canaan and lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent really not as far as sodom better towards sodom he didn't start out in sodom he pitched his tent towards sodom he liked the looks of that land and he started heading toward sodom and what he was doing there he was heading towards evil he was heading towards the wickedness, he was heading toward the enemy because of the lust of his eyes. And uh, it won't be long until he's going to dwell in Sodom. He's going to do business with the Sodomites, and he's actually going to sit as a, at a judge at the gate of Sodom. He's going to be a very prominent man in Sodom. And so he sacrifices all of his beliefs in the true and living God to go and dwell with these very wicked people. We'll study a lot more about Sodom later on, but that process is a process a lot of people of God follow. In other words, we see something we really like, and then we, we, don't, we don't necessarily go right after it, but we start heading that way. We start pitching our tents towards something that's really evil and wicked in God's eyes. And, and, and when we realize that it's evil, sometimes it's too late, and then not only... Do we participate in that evil? We live right in the midst of that evil. We park our tents in a very evil place, way outside the center of God's will. Have you ever landed in a place like that? 
As a believer where you know you were outside of God's will and you were, you were living in wickedness and you were living with wicked people and you, were, and, 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 uh, and, and you, you knew you shouldn't been there, be there and you, you say to yourself, how am I going to get out of this mess? Well, Lot's going to get out of it. It's going to cost him. But later on, we're going to see Lot get out, get out of it, but we'll, we'll, we'll hang on to that later on. But I want to go back to Abraham for a minute. What's Abraham thinking at this point? Here's Lot. And they're up on this mountain, and they look down, and there's, there's this desert to the south, and there's, there's pretty decent land up north, but it's all occupied by Canaanites. And here's this one area that there, there's parasites and Canaanites there, but they're not, they're not in mass numbers, and so they could, they could possibly make it down there. And he, and he looks at that beautiful land, and he thinks, I wish Lot would choose the south, but I don't think he will. Lot chooses the east. And, and here he, has, he watches Lot and his family pack up their stuff and the servants and all their cattle, and they head down the valley, down into the Jordanian plain. And, and, and he's got to be thinking to himself, I mean, hey, all those promises that God made to me earlier, they're just not going to happen. I mean, I mean there, there's no way uh, that, that uh, I'm going to be able to dwell in Beulah land, in the promised land. At least the best part of the promised land. I mean, how is God going to make a great nation out of me down in a desert somewhere? Uh, uh, how am I going to bless all the nations of this earth through my seed? And, and I think he's thinking at this point that all those promises weren't going to be fulfilled through him. They were going to be fulfilled through Lot. And so he's pretty discouraged. But where's he at at this point? He's at Bethel. And where's he at? Bethel is the house of God. And he's built an altar at Bethel, so he's at the altar at the house of God, at the very center of Israel. He's in the very center of God's will. And he ain't going anywhere until he hears from the Lord. And, and, and so uh, he's going to hear from the Lord. Look at verse 14. In verse number 14, it says, it says, And the Lord spoke to Abraham, finally. Can you imagine how excited he got at this point when he hears from the Lord? After Lot, and the Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had separated him, lift up your eyes now. Now, I think there's no doubt here that the Lord is speaking to Abraham in a vision. And he's going to show him things uh, that he couldn't see unless it was a supernatural vision. And he says to him, he, he, he he separates him, he says, lift up your eyes now. And look from the place where you are. Look to the north. And Abraham was able to see all that land that heads up north, up to the Golan Heights and even maybe past that area. And, and uh, then look southward all the way down to the Gulf of Aqaba. And then look eastward to the Mediterranean. And, and then look westward to where Lot's gone. I mean, look eastward to the Jordan. I'm sorry. And then westward to the Mediterranean. For all the land which you see, even the land where Lot's gone, I'm going to give it to you and your descendants for how long? Forever. All you replacement theology people, I hope we don't have any in this room, and we'll kick you out if you are. Don't tell me. But if, I'm joking. But, but how long has that land been given to them? Forever. Forever. Forever means what? Forever. I mean, if they don't have it forever, then you don't have eternal life forever. It's the same word. It's forever. Now, here's what's interesting here. He says, I will give it to your descendants. Descendants maybe isn't, it's certainly in the best translation. The best translation is your seed. I will give it to your seed. 
And I'm sure when Abraham heard that word seed, his heart soared. Because what did that mean? That meant that, that uh, he was going to have a son. And probably at this point, the most important thing to Abraham in his life wasn't all that cattle, wasn't all that gold, wasn't all that silver. The most important thing to him was a son. He wanted a son. God had promised him a son. He thought he had promised him a son. And then he thinks, man, Lot's gone now, and he's tucking the best part of the promised land. I'm not going to have a son. It's going to all be fulfilled through Lot. And then the Lord comes to him and said, through your seed. I'm going to give this to you, and I'm going to give this to your seed forever. And if he was listening very carefully here, he also was promised eternal life because because he says, this land I will give to you and your descendants forever. Not just to his descendants. This land belongs to Abraham forever. He doesn't say you're going to get this one day in the latter part of your life and then you're going to die and it's going to go to your descendants. He doesn't say that. He says, I'm going to give this land to you and your descendants forever. So, so he was telling Abraham, you're going to live forever. You know, that's why when you see the rich man and Lazarus, uh, down in Hades, before Hades, the saints left Hades, Jesus died on the cross and took them to heaven with him. I have no doubt about that. But before that happened, where was Abraham? He was down in Hades, alive and well. You remember what Jesus said about Abraham? He said about the resurrection of the dead, and he used Abraham as an example. He said, but concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that what, that, what was spoken to you by God saying, and he's talking about it in Exodus 3. I am the God of Abraham. Not I was the God of Abraham. I am the God of Abraham. God is not the God of the dead, but he is the God of the living. And Abraham didn't just live till Jesus' day. Jesus was speaking of him as being alive in his day, uh, being his friend in his day. But he is living right now, and he's going to live forever. And one day he's going to possess that land, that plot of land, him and his descendants forever. All right, then verse number 16, he says, And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that man could, if man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. In other words, you're going to have so many children that they're innumerable. Abraham's still having children. He's having children of faith, the church, and he's having uh, the children of Israel, they're still producing children, and they're going to be producing children throughout the millennium, the, the Israel is, and, and maybe even into eternity. We don't know. It, it, it almost speaks as if it's an eternal thing that they're going to continue to produce children because, it, because you can't number the, the pebbles of sand uh, the, the, in the dust of the earth, and you can't, uh, not going to be able to number Abraham's descendants. All right. Then in verse number 17, he's had this vision. He's seen the land from the north to the east to the west to the south. And now God says, hey, I want you to set out, and I want you to see it with your own eyes. Not in a vision. I want you to see it for real. And he says in verse number 17, he says, Arise and walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you, not to Lot. I give it to you. And I think at this point, Abraham's ready to move out. Here he is in the center of God's will. He's at Bethel, the house of God. He's heard from God. And Lot's gone to the left, to the east, 
and he's going to go to the right, to the southwest, and he's going to end up about 30 miles from Jerusalem, south of Jerusalem. He's going to end up in Hebron. Look at verse number 18. Then Abram moved his tent and went and dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, which are in Hebron. And he, now, it's interesting that he picks Hebron to, 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 to park for a while. And he builds an altar there. He's liking these altars now because he's hearing from God. But this time I don't think he's so much pressing God to hear from God as he is wanting to thank God for all God's done for him. So he goes to Hebron. Now, Hebron uh, sits about uh, 3,000 feet above sea level, one of the highest points. It actually is the highest altitude city in the nation of Israel. And you can see a lot of Israel from up there. So Abram's going to park his tent up on this, in, up, up on this plateau. And he's going to be able to look to the east and to the south and to the west. And he's going to be able to see that land. And every time he looks at it, he's going to say, that's mine. That's mine. That's mine. And it's mine and my descendants. And it's going to be mine forever. And so uh, and no doubt at this point, his, his heart's full of joy. Because what's his name? It's Abram. What's it mean? It means father. And now the father is actually going to be a father. And so, man, he is so excited, he builds an altar. You ever done that? You ever just parked somewhere and said, get up on an out, get up in on a high plane? It doesn't necessarily have to be a high altitude, but on a high plane with the Lord, and you just build an altar there? I mean, like Peter, hey, we, this is good. This is good to be here. Let us build three tabernacles. I mean, there's been times in my life where, I, where God has just blessed me in such a way that, that I've said, man, it's good to be here. Let me build a tabernacle. Let me build a tent and let me build an altar. And let me thank God for all God has done for me. And so he's excited. I mean, he can't wait to have a son. Well, Abraham, I hate to tell you, you're going to have to wait. Just like all of us have to wait. It's going to be 25 years. I mean, I think he's thinking, he's probably, him and Sarah are probably thinking, oh, we need to get busy because we're going to have this son right away. But it's going to be 25 years. But he's thankful regardless. So here's Abraham. Uh, he's, he's needed to hear from God. Uh, and man, does he hear from God. I mean, he hears from God and God tells him what a great plan he has, what a great plan and future he has for him. And, and he finds God at the altar at Bethel. What about you? I mean, has it been a while since you've heard a word from the Lord where you just know that the Lord has spoken to you? I mean, do you need to hear a word from the Lord right now? I, you know, if you don't, let me tell you, you're going to sooner or later, probably sooner than later. You're going to need to hear from the Lord. And there's a great lesson here for us when we need to hear from the Lord. Where's the best place to hear from the Lord? It's at the center of God's will. It's at Bethel, the house of God. That's where you need to be to hear a word 
from the Lord. So, so where is the house of God? That's the question we want to answer, and there's two answers to that question. The first answer to that question is that you and I are the house of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, Do you not know that your body is the tabernacle of God, the house of God, the dwelling place of God, the temple of God? Do you not know that? And whenever we go into our closets to pray, if we'll take that seriously and really believe that, God is with us when we pray. And we don't have to go in our closets to have God with us. God is with us all the time. But let me tell you what, for you to to hear from God, you've got to be able to recognize his presence. You've got to honor his presence. You've got to be cognizant of his presence. If you're a sealed believer, if you're a born-again believer, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. You are a sealed believer. And God is always present with you, but it takes action on your part to hear from God, to find God, because because if you're going to push him out, then he's going to be on the outside and knocking to come back in. I mean, I believe you're sealed with the Spirit. You're always sealed with the Spirit. And so, so I'm speaking metaphorically here. But we, in effect, push God out of our house by ignoring God and not honoring God in our lives. And then we don't ever hear from God and we wonder why we don't hear from God. God wants us to recognize and honor his presence, to really believe that he's there. And that changes the way we live. It changes the way we pray because he's, if he's always with me, he's tabernacled in me, then I, don't, I can pray without ceasing. That's what Paul says, pray without ceasing because God's there. And shame on us when we push holy, righteous, loving God out of our lives. Shame on us. There's a second answer to that question, where's Bethel? And, and I want you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, way back in the New Testament. We haven't been there a while, have we? But you know what? It's the same stuff. Isn't it the same stuff? The Old Testament's the same as the New Testament. The same stuff, same God. Same stuff. In 1 Timothy, if you can find it, way back towards the end of the Bible. First Timothy chapter 3. I want you to look at verse number 13. He says, I'm, I'm sorry, verse number 15. He says, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in where? The house of God. Now, if Paul was speaking to Jewish believers at this point, he's speaking to Timothy, so he's not. But if he was speaking to Jewish believers at this point, what would he say there? He would say, he would say, but I am delayed. I write to you that you may know how you may ought to conduct yourself at Bethel. In Hebrew, that's the house of God. That's what he would have said in Hebrew. So it's Bethel. Which is what? Now, here's the answer to that question. Where is Bethel? Where is the center of God's will? It is the church of the living God. The church of the living God. Where you're at today. That is Bethel. This is the house of God. Now, 
This building stands here seven days a week, 365 days a year. But it only becomes the house of God on Sunday morning and Wednesday night and whatever we might have a fellowship or something. That's when it becomes the house of God. When believers who God is tabernacling in assemble together in the house of God. That's when this becomes the house of God. So this is why it's so important to be in the house of God to be in the center of God's will. Because listen to what he says. He says how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. The pillar and the, watch this, the ground of truth. What is truth? Jesus is truth. His word is truth. When you come to church, to the house of God, what should you be hearing? You should be hearing truth. You should be hearing the word of God because it is the foundation of truth. And, and so that's why it's so important there's, to be in the house of God because there's no better place to be in the center of God's will than in this church. People tell me I don't have to be in the church. I don't need to be a part of the church. That's wrong. Now, you can be saved and not be part of the church, but you're outside of God's will. You're not in the center of God's will. Because, listen to me, it's in the church that I'm studying God's word, the pillar of truth. It's in the church that we pray together for each other. It's in the church that we give to God and we give to his work. It's in the church that we serve one another. It's, it's, it, it's in Bethel that we share one another's burdens and if you're outside the church you're not doing that so when i'm in the church i'm in the center of god's will and when i'm not in bethel when i'm not cognizant of god's presence in my life when i'm not in the house of god this church on a regular basis It's real easy for us to end up like Abraham and had take a right turn towards Egypt, back to the world. I see people do it all the time. I don't have to be in church. And I'll tell you what, before long, you know where you find them? You find them back in the world. Or worse yet, they take a left turn and they head towards Sodom and the total wickedness. Do they lose their salvation when they do that? Not if they were born again believers. Did Lot lose his salvation? No. We'll see that later on. That's why the author of Hebrews, who I believe is Paul, by the way, says we to never forsake the assembling of ourselves together at Bethel, at the house of God. And there's one more thing, maybe the most important thing, about being In this house, it's in this house that we come to the altar of God. I mean, Abraham built a crude altar because he knew that he was a sinner and he knew he had no right to approach God. But we're way past Abraham in our theology. And we know that that altar, that brazen altar, is the cross. And when we come together as an assembly... We come together to remember what happened on that cross. When we come to the Lord's table, 
and we eat the bread and we drink the wine. We're remembering the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And we're coming to that altar in the house of God. And we're never more at the center of God's will than when we take the Lord's Supper, which we're going to do here in just a minute. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for Bethel. Lord, what a thought that, that you dwell in us. We can, we can come to you anytime with our needs, with our cares. We can, we can hear a word from you. Lord, you speak so clearly to us if we'll just seek you out. We'll turn from this world. We'll turn from Sodom and we'll seek you out. Father, And then we come to this house, Lord, and we study your word by the Spirit of God. And Lord, it's the pillar of truth. It's the pillar. It's the foundation of our, our, of our faith. And we just thank you for that, that you've given us your word, that you've given us your spirit. And Lord, now we want to come to this table, to this altar, to your cross. We want to remember what you've done for us, and we want to thank you with grateful hearts for just how wonderful and loving of a God you are. We just thank you in Jesus' name. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become His righteousness. He humbled Himself and carried the cross. Love so amazing. Love so amazing. Jesus Messiah Name above all names Blessed Redeemer Emmanuel The rescue for sinners Some from heaven, Jesus Messiah, Lord of all. His body, the bread, his blood, the wine, broken and poured. Out all for love The whole earth trembled And the veil was torn Love so amazing Love so amazing Jesus Messiah Name above all names, blessed Redeemer, Emmanuel, 
for sinners the ransom from heaven Jesus Messiah Lord of all Abraham went back to Bethel, the house of God, to the altar he had built to worship and thank the Lord for all the Lord had done for him. Like Abraham today, that's what we're doing. We're coming back again to the altar of God, to worship God and to thank God for all that God's done for us, for his broken body and his shed blood that paid for all our sins, past, present, and future. And when we come to this table, as I said a while ago, we're at the very center of God's will. Why are we at the center of God's will? Because it's at this table that we recognize that it's not our works that establish our righteousness, but that our righteousness is a gift of God that was given to us at the cross of Jesus Christ. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, For I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had broken it and given thanks, he said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Y'all want to stand and we'll close in a song. Good.